we're going to talk some more about existentialism today. And I'm going to talk to you about a couple of Swiss psychiatrists, Binswanger and Boss, just as a starting point. Their psychological viewpoint was influenced to a large degree by a philosopher named Heidegger. And Heidegger considered himself a student of being. And for Heidegger, the, the main mystery of the world was why, why it existed. And the, the best way to think about the phenomenon, he was a phenomenologist, and the best way to think about phenomenology and existentialism is that phenomenology is the study of experience as it's lived. And then existentialism puts a twist on that because existentialists assume that being has an implicitly moral dimension. And the existentialist psychologists presume that pathology, at least in part, is a consequence of a disturbed relationship, a disturbed moral relationship with the self and being. It's very tricky thinking, and it's not often handled in personality courses anymore, but I think that's a big mistake, the phenomenological element in particular. The thing I really like about it is that it's a really good counterpart to modern materialistic viewpoint because it puts consciousness at the center of being instead of treating it as if it's something that's a secondary phenomena that emerges from something else. And our modern presuppositions, especially the scientific presuppositions, or what pass for scientific presuppositions, are generally extremely reductionist. And they assume that consciousness is in some manner that's not yet been determined, like a secondary byproduct of fundamentally material processes. And it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis, but I wouldn't say there's any real evidence for it. I mean, it's hard to over state how mysterious consciousness is as a phenomena. For Heidegger, consciousness was a mystery that was in some sense equivalent to the mystery of being. And the way that the reason for that was that he couldn't conceive of existence without a, without a subject. So you can imagine if the world was stripped of consciousness, it's very difficult to describe what would be left. I mean, if you take a very straightforward materialistic viewpoint, you could make the presumption that if everything that was conscious was eradicated, then things would be just the way they are now. But that, I think that's a shallow viewpoint because consciousness is what gives everything a perspective. It gives it a size, and it gives it a duration, and it gives it colors and, and all the qualities that we associate with being. And without that, consciousness, all that's at least incomprehensible. And, and then there are deeper problems that are dealt with by people like John Wheeler, who's a quantum physicist who believes that consciousness is, necessarily, is necessary for quantum indeterminacy to resolve itself into something that's concrete and actual. So Wheeler, and, and many physicists like him, 
put consciousness at the center of the process that turns potential into actuality. Now, at the same time these quantum ideas were being developed, these philosophical ideas and psychological ideas that I'm describing were being developed. And they provide such a different take on the structure of reality that, that I think they're indispensable. I also think they're, they're, they're interesting in relationship in particular to Piaget's thought, because the phenomenologists have a constructivist element to their thinking in that they believe that consciousness plays a constructive role in the establishment of being. So we're going to look at being. So again, the way to think about this is you've got to flip your viewpoint in a sense. Is you have to think about your experience as reality and that everything that's inside that experience, so to speak, as a subcomponent of that reality instead of thinking of material things as the reality and your experience somehow emerging out of those. It's, it's an inversion of what constitutes the fundamental reality. And so you can think about it in a sense as an intellectual exercise. I mean, most of the way that people think is predicated on some kind of implicit set of axioms. And if you change the axioms, you can, also, you can often shed light on reality in a new and interesting way. And so we're going to walk through the phenomenological viewpoint and we're going to see why and how that might be interesting, the phenomenological and existential viewpoints. And then I'm, in the next lecture I'm going to put a twist on that because what you think about the nature of reality appears to have some powerful re relationship with how that reality unfolds itself. And the existentialists, the phenomenologists were very big believers in the reality of subjective experience and the existentialists were very big believers in the ethical responsibility of the individual. And I'm going to talk to you about what happened in the Soviet Union between 1919 and 1959, which is a period of world history that isn't well covered in our culture. I mean, everybody knows about the Nazi Holocaust, but very few people know that between 30 million and 60 million people were killed as a consequence of internal repression in the Soviet Union between 1919 and 1959. That's a figure that's five times as big as the commonly held figures for the Holocaust. And the reason I'm going to introduce that to you is first you should know about it because it's the stellar example of what happens when people abandon their individual responsibility. And second, and related to that, it's an object lesson in why in what happens when the presuppositions that the phenomenologists and the existentialists held about the nature of reality were completely dismissed in, in favor of a rationalist utopianism. And rationalist utopias, ideologically rational utopias, killed millions and millions of people in the 20th century. And it seems to me that you can make a fairly powerful case that <clears throat> if a if, if your view of reality, when it's played out in the social world, turns genocidal time and time again, there's probably something existentially wrong with it. And then a second derivation of that might be, if there's something that existentially wrong with a viewpoint, in, in what way can you consider it tenable, even if it makes sense and it's rational, if the outcome is 
genocide and deceit and misery, it's perfectly reasonable to presume that that's evidence that it's wrong. Now, most of you, and this is particularly true, I think, of universities, are taught a kind of, at least a kind of implicit moral relativism. You know, that it's, that it's and that's fair, that's reasonable from a scientific perspective, at least to some point. But there's a problem with that because there are forms of moral presupposition that seem to lead to horrendous ends. And it's always struck me, because I grew up like you and under the shadow of nuclear destruction, so to speak, it always has struck me that if certain viewpoints lead to genocidal outcomes, and if they do that consistently, then it's extremely dangerous for us not to act as if that's wrong. And of course, if something's wrong, then that also implies that something is right, right? Because the opposite of wrong is right. And so even if you can't necessarily figure out what's right, you might be able to ground yourself to some degree by figuring out what's wrong. And so we'll walk through the philosophy and the psychology first, and then we'll walk through the sociological consequences of its abandonment, in a sense. And well, then you can see for yourself if you think that this perspective is worthy of some consideration. It's very complicated. Well, we'll look at this first. Phenomenology, in part, is based on this idea of Dasein, and Dasein means being there. And again, this way of simplifying that is to think about it as your experience. And then this is a map I've made of people's experience, which I think is at least roughly equivalent to the phenomenologist's design, and it has the advantage that I can explain it well, so I'm going to use it. And so the phenomenologists believe that the past and the present and the future are all tangled up together in your current experience, in that, say, everything that you're doing is related to the future, which it of course is because you're sitting in this class, and that has some consequences for whether or not you graduate, and that has some consequences for your status and your career moving forward, and you're perfectly aware of that, so that you experience the meaning of the, the lecture, say, in the context of your conceptions of the future. And, of, of course, the same thing is true of your experience now because of your past. And so the past and the future, in some sense, are here now. It's partly because when you're experiencing things, you consider your current situation and you consider where it is that you're headed. And so Dasein also has this element of becoming in it. There's, you're not just a static thing. And you don't ever experience anything that's in your environment as something that's merely static. You always experiencing you're always experiencing it in relationship to your plans for transformation. And that might be short term, like maybe you're bored of the class because you need to go get a cup of coffee, and, and that colors your current experience, or maybe it's long term or it's medium term, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that your viewpoint of the future conditions your experience in the present. So in some sense, the future is already here. It's also the case that what you do now is going to have effects and consequences into the future.
here's a, here's a more complicated consequence. So, you're somewhere now, and you're going somewhere in the future. And one of the consequences of that is that your nervous system, that's one way of looking at it, parses up the world in relationship to the relationship between those two poles. So, for example, when you walk into a class, and your plan is to sit down, then you're immediately going to perceive an array of chairs. Imagine you were coming in here to clean up the room instead of sitting down for a lecture. Well, then the things that would manifest themselves to you would be qualitatively different. So maybe you'd only be looking for the things that were out of place. Or maybe you're coming in here because you're spectacularly lonesome and you think that, you know, there's somebody here who might be a potential partner, then the world's going to array itself in front of you in a different manner. And the degree to which what you're pursuing in relationship to where you are determines even how the objects of the world manifest themselves to you is indeterminate. It happens to a tremendous degree. And it's not only that things manifest themselves to you as objects in relationship to your conception of your current situation and your goals, but your emotions are also hang on that platform. So, for example, if you're writing an exam and you expect a C, you're hoping for a C, and you get a B, then you're going to be extremely happy about it, but if you are hoping for an A and you get a B, then you're going to be extremely unhappy about it. And what's interesting about that is that, in some sense, the stimulus, as the behaviorists would have it, is the same, but the emotional consequence is actually reversed. It seems to me to be sort of related to the idea of Maya, which is a Buddhist idea, which is that people live inside a framework that's conditioned by desire, and as a consequence, it's not actually real. And the, the, unreality, the unreality of it is that you can change what manifests itself to you, and the importance of what manifests itself to you, by changing your conception of your, of your goal, your future, or also by changing your conception of who and where you are right now. And so in that sense, being, your experience, is malleable. And it's, it's, it's malleable, at least in part, as a consequence of the choices that you make. And so what that implies from a phenomenological perspective is that free will and the manner in which the world manifests itself are integrally related. And from an existential point of view, it implies that you actually bear a fair bit of responsibility for the ongoing quality of your experience. And the existentialists would presume that that responsibility is built into the nature of being. There's no way out of it. It's like a precondition for being. The, the word phenomenon is from a Greek word, and the, the Greek word is phainisthai. And what phainisthai means is to shine forth. Now, one of the presuppositions of the phenomenological viewpoint is that reality, in, in some sense, is composed of what shines forth. Now, this is a very difficult thing to explain, but I, I can do it partly this way. 
So when you're moving from point A to point B, you can parse the world up into tools and obstacles. I showed you that in the last slide. Tools are things that get you to where you're going, and so what the tools are depends on where you're going, and obstacles are the things that get in your way. And so if you perceive tools, then that makes you happy, because happiness, at least in part, is experienced in relationship to movement towards a goal. And if you experience nothing but obstacles, that's going to produce negative emotion. And so this is a variant of that. And the variant is, when you're moving from point A to point B, you can experience things that you predict or desire, and those make you hopeful and happy. Or you can experience things that are unpredictable, and those make you, those are threats and they make you anxious, but it's broader than that. They disinhibit negative emotion in a more general sense. But sometimes you can experience something that's so unpredicted and so shocking that it blows the framework that you're using. It, 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 what would you say? The phenomenologists called that loss of world. The framework, the thing that you encounter is so unexpected that its appearance blows the structure of being apart. And that happens, for example, when people are betrayed by someone that they love. Or maybe they're very seriously hurt. Or they develop a very serious illness. Or, or a dream that they've been pursuing for a long period of time is rendered impossible by some failure. Or, or some unexpected natural occurrence. Now, Part of the question is, what do you experience when your world falls apart? Your world emerges from something, and then when it falls apart, it falls back into that something, that chaotic state. And the, the phenomenologists say that what you experience most basically is meaning. So from, from a phenomenological perspective, when, when you're looking at the world, you perceive meaning, and then you derive objects from that. And you derive the objects in relationship to your representation of your current state and your future state. So from a phenomenological perspective, the base of the world is meaning. Now, I can give you some hints about how that plays itself out. So, so, so one interesting phenomena is how interest guides your ability to concentrate. Okay, so let's say that you've got a, an array of difficult papers on your desk, and you have to read them. Now, some of those papers, independently of their difficulty, some of those papers will presume that you're actually interested in. And some of them you're not interested in. And so, so the papers that you're interested in come with this quality that the phenomenologists described as shining forth. There's something about them that grips your attention, that enables you to concentrate, that enables you to learn, and that enables you to remember, and in a relatively effort, effortless way. Whereas the other papers that you're not interested in, assuming they're of equivalent difficulty, it's very difficult to focus your attention on, and they lie there in sort of an inert manner. So, the Fenestai phenomena is partially apprehendable by considering what the difference is to you between something that you're interested in and something that you're not. Now, someone like Jung 
would think of that interest as a consequence of an internal process, a psychological process that's guiding your attention. But the phenomenologists, at least in, it's tricky because they go both ways on this, would consider the fact that some things are illuminated so that they're easy to concentrate on is actually a function of being itself. It isn't something that you apply to the world, it's a characteristic of being. Some things shine forth as meaningful and some things don't. Now the existentialists would say, at least in part, that you have a duty to follow the things that shine forth. That's where the moral element of this comes in. Now, Binswanger said, for example, what we perceive are, first and foremost, not impressions of taste, tone, smell or touch, not even things or objects, but meanings. And then Binswanger and Boss split on the reason for why some things manifest themselves as compelling and some things don't. Binswanger would say that you come equipped with an it's like it's a Kantian idea with an a priori ontological structure and that's imagine you're reading a book so then you might say and the book obviously has meaning you're reading it and you're you're into it you might ask yourself where is the book and you could say well the book is the physical object that I have in my hand I mean that's that's what people act like, in some sense, or at least that's what they say they act like. The book is the physical object. But then, person A might read the book and say, I thought that was a terrible book, and person B might read that book and say, I thought that was a great book, and person A and B might differ on how they responded to the characters, and they're going to differ in terms of how they imagine the situation. And like, There's a tremendous amount of flexibility in exactly what constitutes the book. And so you'd say, well, the book is an artifact, and the artifact is produced by the, the author, but of course, it's not just produced by the author because it's produced inside a cultural context that shaped the author and that shaped you, and then you bring something to bear on the book, which is the sum total of your individual knowledge and your enculturated knowledge. And so what that means is that it's almost as if there's a pattern that constitutes you, and there's a pattern that constitutes the book, and when you put the the two of them together, you get a juxtaposition of the two patterns, and it's the juxtaposition, that's the book. And it's, it's the realization of it, this, in some part, that's led to the oddities of postmodernism and, and to the claim that there's no canonical meaning to any given text, because it's a matter of interpretation. It's like, yeah, well, just because it's a matter of interpretation, and even maybe just because the interpretations are very wide in potential scope, that doesn't mean that the text doesn't have any meaning. But you can understand how that idea might have come about. Now for Binswanger, the reason the book would be meaningful, at least in part, is because you're imposing something on it. And so that would be your individuality. Boss would say the opposite. He would say, well, no, the book itself is manifesting it, its meaning to you in some sense of its own accord. And that's because Boss doesn't necessarily make a distinction between the thing, the book, and the entire context within which it's embedded. And he would consider the meaning emerging as a consequence of that entire context. You can't separate the book out from 
the situation in which it's embedded. Here's a map that I made a while back that helped me understand this, at least to some degree. The phenomenologists talk about three elements of, of being, of Dasein. One is the umwelt, the other, another is the mitwelt, and the third is the eigenwelt. And there are various ways to conceptualize these, and I can give you a couple now. The umwelt is the natural world, so when we say nature, that's what we mean. We say, well, human beings live in nature. We have a natural environment. So the idea that there's a natural environment is like a canonical idea. And, and you know, we, we even think of the natural environment sometimes as the unspoiled natural environment. As if there are natural environments that exist in the complete absence of human endeavor. And then we also have a social world, and the social world is the world of culture. So there's nature and culture, and that's umwelt and mitwelt. And then finally, other than that, there's the world of the self, which is the part of being, your being, that's only accessible to you. So it's you in, in the middle of culture, in the middle of nature. And so those are the elements of Dasein. And for Binswanger, it's the mitwelt that contains most of the meaning, or at least that structures the meaning. So if you're reading a great novel, the degree to which you can extract meaning from it is a consequence of your previous education and your own enculturation. But that isn't necessarily the only way to look at things. Like, if you walk into a bookstore, say, and a book catches your eye, you might say that, that book caught my eye. Well, you think, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that out of all the innumerable entities in the bookstore that could have caught your eye, only that one did. And then you might ask, why? Well, and Boss would say, well, the world is disclosing a particular meaning to you. Why? Well, that has something to do with the way that you're playing out your individual destiny. show you this first. So this is both a constructivist and a phenomenological perspective. And so here's the idea. That the thing that's at the center of reality is the domain that's not yet mapped. So you're in a relationship. The relationship is betrayed. Before you're betrayed, you're in one place, and after you're betrayed, you're in another place. Before you're betrayed, your world is all structured, and you know where you are and what you're doing and who you're with and what everything is. The second after you're betrayed, none of that's true. And so, the second after you're betrayed, nothing is structured. It's like everything reverts to, to a chaotic place. And so, 
in some sense, the only time that you encounter a pure view of what the world itself is made out of, what the ground of being is, is when you encounter an error that's so overwhelming that your current framework of meaning is no longer applicable. So the framework blows apart, but it isn't as if nothing happens when the framework blows apart. Like, if you're in a committed relationship and you find security in that, and you believe that the security is genuine, and that blows apart, then everything that you presumed is wrong. That's your mid-wealth. But when that disappears, there's something underneath it. And what's underneath it, that's the, that's the ground of reality. And the ground of reality is what you explore to put yourself back together and to put the world back together. So you're betrayed and you fall into a depression and you're anxious. But you know, there's always the possibility of a new relationship that beckons and perhaps your previous relationship wasn't perfect so the chaos that you fall into is depressing and anxiety provoking so it generates a lot of negative emotion but sort of lurking behind that are the sort of dim remnants of hope and then as you proceed forward with your grief and your misery and you're attempting to reconstruct a stable mode of being you take out of that thing that's anomalous you and the world so another way of thinking about this is that for the phenomenologists and this is where they're similar to the constructivists the ground of reality isn't so much matter as it is information and when you're when you're living in in your constructed world and things are going the way that you want them to go then you've constrained that information in a particular way, constrained and narrowed it in a particular way that serves your particular narrow end. And that, that makes things much more comfortable because then you don't have to deal with the, the information that constitutes the entire world. You can remove most of it and say, well, all that's relevant to me, all that necessarily makes up my world of being are these circumscribe is this circumscribed set of phenomena and that works well when it's working but when it doesn't work and it blows apart that puts you somewhere else and that that being put somewhere else can be well revelatory sometimes I mean sometimes people make new discoveries that blow their previous frames of reference and it's like awe-inspiring and overwhelming to them in a positive way sometimes you can come across something new that helps you reconfigure the way that you're living almost instantly in a more comprehensive and fuller way but more common is the traumatic response which is when the presuppositions of your world are shifted dramatically and you fall into the surrounding chaos then it's so hard on you that you know it actually does you psychophysiological damage now You remember that drawing I showed you with the little ovals at the bottom and the bigger ovals at the top, the hierarchy? You remember that? Does everybody remember that? I decomposed, say, good person, which is a very high order abstraction, down to put a fork on the table, which is a motor movement that's part of making dinner, which is part of 
being a good parent, which is part of being a good citizen, which is part of being a good person. So the idea was that the higher order abstractions can be concretized down to the motor behaviors in a hierarchy. Okay, now, if someone goes after you at the good person level of analysis and they just demolish you, you know, in the course of, say, a three-year relationship, hacking away at the idea that you have any moral worth whatsoever, this is what happens when you're abused, then that's going to knock you into pieces <clears throat> at a very complex and high level of abstraction, so that can undermine your entire worldview. If the person instead helps you retool the little behaviors and the little microstructures that make you up, and if you're willing to participate in that, and if you're open to corrective feedback from the world, then you can continually adjust yourself at a small level, and then that makes the things in the hierarchy a little higher, a little healthier, and then that makes the aggregation of those things a little higher in the hierarchy, a little healthier and a little more complete. Then you can do this bit by bit retooling without ever having to suffer the demolition of huge chunks of your personality. So let's go back to the relationship where there's a betrayal. It's like virtually every time someone gets flipped upside down because of a betrayal in a relationship, after the betrayal happens, they say to themselves, there were all these signs I didn't pay attention to. So, and maybe the first sign is, who knows, your partner starts to flirt a bit more when you go out on a social occasion. It's, and not a lot more, just a bit more. And you decide, because maybe you're timid, that, that that's okay. You're not going to do anything about it. But it's... But it's, it's interesting that it happens. It grabs your attention. And it means something. But what you decide is, it's not worth paying attention to. And so maybe the next eight times that you go out, the same thing happens, but it happens at a somewhat accelerated rate. And then maybe the person starts to go out without you. And so on. There's this progression towards the end state of betrayal. And every time you get a little hint, the world tells you that something's going on, you put it aside and you fail to take it into account. Well, you're foregoing your opportunity to adjust the relationship at micro stages, because maybe what you should have done the first time that happened is you should have gone home with your partner and said, um, what the hell's going on? Like, this is what was happening, why are you doing that, um, here's how you should have behaved, and of course that's going to be a fight, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But, it might be a micro-fight, instead of a, the relationship is over fight. And in order to keep a relationship healthy, it needs to be retooled at micro-levels constantly, and the same is the case with your own character. When you encounter something that's unexpected, especially if it's small enough to handle, you need to extract the information from it, rebuild the world, and rebuild yourself. And then maybe if you continue doing that, every time you get evidence of an anomaly or an error, or every time the world manifests some meaning to you, then you won't have to fall apart. Because the structure that constitutes you is going to remain viable and healthy from the bottom up. And if you don't do that, then those errors are going to accumulate 
And when they finally do manifest themselves as unavoidable, like when your partner says, I don't want to be with you anymore, or I've been with someone else for the last year, there's no ignoring that, then the whole thing comes crashing down. You're no longer in a relationship, you're no longer in a good relationship, and then all the other things become questionable. So, meaning manifests itself so that you can retool being itself on a continual basis while simultaneously minimizing the risk of total collapse and morality then becomes the act of paying sufficient attention and reacting sufficiently so that that corrective process occurs now so you're inside one of these, you're going from point A to point B and as you do that, things you want to have happen, happen and things you don't want to have happen and things you don't understand happen and let's say that you investigate the things that you don't want to have happen and you investigate the things that you didn't expect and you do that as soon as they come up so then what happens? well partly what happens is you're going to change your perceptions a bit and you're going to change your actions a bit and what that'll culminate in over time is that this whole structural change so instead of going from point A to point B maybe you start shifting so that you're going from point A to point C because as you're gathering information as a consequence of the inadequacies of the way you're looking at the world not only are you improving your ability to perceive and to act but you're also gathering information that helps shift your perspective to a better point B because you might say, well where are you going and why? and the answer to that is, well you have a plan, you're going to get your degree I don't know what your long-term plan is but there's no reason to assume that your long-term plan is correct even though there's no reason to assume that you can do without one so you're in this weird situation where you have to live within a bounded space and the bounded space is going to produce errors and it's also going to be wrong but at the same time if you use the bounded space then you can transform it continually across time even what it's aimed at and you can minimize the probability of precipitous collapse now I want to show you how this has been represented, it's very complicated and difficult so on the right you see the the Harry Potter snitch thing, right? and then on the left here you see this incredibly peculiar alchemical image and the image is something like this, this is what this image means, it means at the base of the world is this weird combination of matter and spirit, so this is matter and this is spirit, the winged element represents spirit and then out of that comes something that's like primordial and reptilian and then out of that comes something that's associated with consciousness so it's, it's like a, it's a map of the way that consciousness emerges from the base of reality now you'll see that this thing and that thing the snitch and the this thing is called the round chaos this thing 
the snitch and the round chaos are the same thing. Now, in, in Harry Potter, when he plays Quidditch, remember Piaget had such an emphasis on games, right? Piaget believed that games were the sub-elements of human culture. And Quidditch is this weird two-level game, where on one level it's sort of like soccer or basketball, and then on another level you have two players that are seekers, and what they seek is this snitch. And the snitch is this thing that captures your attention. That's why it's golden and winged, and it moves around very fast. It's like Mercury, the spirit Mercury, because Mercury, the god, had winged feet. And he was the messenger of the gods. So that's, that's how Mercury was conceived of. And I'll tell you something else that's weird about Mercury. So Mercury's a metal as well. And if you mix Mercury with sand, and the sand has gold in it, then the Mercury will pick up the sand. And then, or the gold, and then you can heat up the mercury and all that's left is gold. So mercury will lead you to where the gold is. And the spirit Mercurius, the mercurial spirit, was the messenger of the gods. And if you paid attention to mercury, the god, then you'd gather the gold. But it wasn't the gold of fools, it was the gold that made your life valuable. And that's the same thing that's played out in this weird Quidditch game. The two best players, the fastest, the ones that are most awake, aren't playing the normal game. They're playing a superordinate game. And the superordinate game is, pay attention. Pay attention. And if you pay attention, then you'll get the thing that's most valuable. You win the game, but there's more than that, because in the Harry Potter series, for example, there was a piece of soul in that. And that's related to the idea that if you pay attention to what interests you, what manifests itself as meaningful, not only do you build the world out of that, because you're differentiating something that's undifferentiated into something that's comprehensible and usable, but at the same time you're doing the same thing to yourself. Because, and that's the constructivist idea, right? It's that, well, where do, you, where do you come from? Well, you come from exploration, and the generation of information and exploration. What should you explore? Well, the things that shine forth to you. That's the phenomenological idea. And the existential idea is, if you refuse to explore the things that shine forth for you, that capture your interest and your attention, then that will lessen you as a being. It'll make you weaker and progressively weaker, because not only do you remain unformed, but the ratio of chaos to world in your domain of being becomes too intolerable, too much chaos, not enough order, not enough of you. Then the whole thing is unstable. Then you've only got two options. One is that you lose belief in being itself, and that's like a nihilistic reaction. And the other is, you turn to some sort of totalitarian or ideological solution that fills in for where you're not. And that's an abdication of your individual responsibility. And the consequence of turning to totalitarian ideologies like that is that they stagnate and become brittle because there's no transformation in them anymore because all of the people inside of them have decided that transformation is unnecessary. And so they become increasingly outdated and corrupt, and then 
that's the first step on the way to having everything fall apart in the most horrible possible way and that plays out at the state level just like it plays out at the individual level I'll tell you a dream I had about this since we're just out of the psychoanalytic domain I can show you using this how dreams often solve problems I'll just read it to you because I wrote it when I just after I had it I'll just tell it to you so the first thing I saw was it was like a view from a space shuttle so it was a global view and I could see the Atlantic Ocean and on the surface of the Atlantic Ocean there were four hurricanes and they were in a quadrant like this so there was a circle here and a circle here and a circle here and a circle here and they were very large hurricanes I mean one hurricane's quite good but four that's a lot of hurricanes so it was impressive and so then the next thing I saw was a bank of scientists in a kind of a dark room watching TV screens focused on this hurricane storm event and wondering what was going on and then the next thing I saw was this little ball about this big hovering over the surface of the ocean so now I was in the eye so the four hurricanes had an eye in the middle of them you know a calm place and so this little ball which was about 10 feet above the surface of the water was in that calm place and the storms were its accompaniment so and it was zooming along at a very rapid rate and it was bringing the storms with them and so all of the scientists with their satellites were trying to figure out what this little ball that was 10 feet off the ocean surface and then needed like four hurricanes to accompany it accompany it they were trying to figure out what this thing was okay so the next scene was I was a third person observer and I was in this room it was a small room about eight by eight say and in the middle of the room there was this display case like a museum you know like a Victorian museum so it was made out of wood the top it had this glass and inside the case was this ball and it was just floating and inside the room was Stephen Hawking you know the physicist in the wheelchair and a faceless president of the United States it didn't matter who he was it just mattered that he was president of the United States and then the room itself I remember from the dream was made out of titanium dioxide and I woke up and I after this dream and I thought what the hell is titanium dioxide <laughs> and the walls were seven feet thick so the the idea was that little ball which had caused those four storms was going to be they caught it and they put it in that room and it was going to stay there titanium dioxide turned out to be the metal that the hull of the starship enterprise is built out of <laughs> so it's it, it represented like an impermeable substance and so inside the so there was this box made out of this high-tech metal and then inside the, the room the American president was there so he's sort of representative of the Mittwelt you know the social environment he's sort of king of the social environment and then Stephen Hawking well Stephen Hawking is disembodied rationality right obviously so 
<laughs> so, the room was a classification system in a sense, and this ball, whatever it was, was stuck in there. And so it was going to be a thing that you could look at in a museum, and it wasn't going anywhere. So it had been fixed. And so I was watching this thing. And then, when I was watching it, it did two weird things in the museum case. The first thing it did was turn into a chrysalis. And you, you know what a chrysalis is? It's the, like a cocoon that a butterfly comes out of. And you may not know this, but the word, the Greek word for butterfly is psyche. And the reason the psyche is a butterfly is because the psyche is something that transforms. And it transforms towards something that's like an aerial spirit. So, this ball was transforming, it transformed into a chrysalis. And then it did a really strange thing. It transformed into a pipe, like a smoking pipe. It was a meerschaum pipe, which is a, a carved pipe. I think it's Irish. Sort of looks like a little saxophone thing. But it was definitely a pipe. And so that was the whole dream. And I woke up and I thought, I got the chrysalis idea. This, whatever this ball was, was the thing that's capable of transforming. But then I thought, what the hell? What does that pipe mean? What could that poss pipe possibly mean? One other thing. It transformed into a chrysalis, and then back to a ball. And then it transformed into a pipe, and then back into a ball. And then it went, poof! And shot out of the case, and shot right through the seven feet walls, and it was gone. And it just left a hole, like there was it was moving so fast, there was just a hole in the case, and there was a hole in the wall, and that was the end of that. So, it, it was a ball, it did its chrysalis thing, did its pipe thing, and then it was gone. That box was not going to hold it. So after I had that dream, quite a while later, two years later, I read this little poem from Dante. It's from the Inferno. The Inferno is an interesting book because it's Dante's attempt, it's a, it's a book about hell, and it's Dante's attempt, in a sense, to turn the old idea of hell into something that was psychological. So Dante has this vision of hell as this place that has multiple depths with something that's the absolute worst right at the center. So in some sense it's his attempt to come up with a category structure of, of evil, he actually puts betrayers right in the center. He figured that was the worst form of, of moral error. Anyways, here's part of the poem. Virgil and Dante are going into the inferno. Virgil's the guide. Suddenly there broke on the dirty swell of the dark marsh a squall of terrible sound that sent a tremor through both shores of hell, a sound as if two continents of air, one frigid and one scorching, clashed head-on in a war of winds that stripped the forest bare, ripped off whole boughs and blew them helter-skelter along the range of dust it raised before it, making the beasts and shepherds run from shelter, run for shelter. That's a messenger from God comes down, and that's how he makes himself manifest. And I thought, wow, that's very much like this dream I had two continents of air, and there was the, this similar idea that there was something at the center that, was, that couldn't be encapsulated in a, what, a conceptual structure, at least not for any length of time. And you know, being is like that. You can't encapsulate it in a, 
conceptual structure for any length of time. No matter what you think, you're wrong. And even if you're right enough for the time being, being is transforming and you have to keep up with it. Because otherwise the structure that you were inhabiting becomes dead and decays and then you fall apart. And so, you need a conceptual structure because it orients you. But, it can't be static. And that's the problem with totalitarian ideology, is that totalitarian ideology is predicated on the idea, it's utopian, that you can finally model things once and for all. And so once you do that, it's perfect, and then it never has to change. And that's, that's wrong technically. It's not wrong arbitrarily, it's not a kind of relative wrong. It's just wrong. And it's because whatever being is, is not static, and so whatever it is that you inhabit to allow being to work in your favor also can't be static, even though it has to be a structure. And then I figured out why it was a pipe. And that took about three years for me to figure that out. And this is a famous painting by Magritte, right? And so it says, this is not a pipe. So what does that mean? What does he mean? The first question is, is it a pipe? What do we think? It's certainly, it's actually an image of an image of a pipe, right? Because we're projecting it. But yes, <laughs> you're exactly right. It's not a pipe. And so what, what's Magritte trying to communicate? What's the idea? The idea is the conception is not the object. Or another way of putting it is the map is not the territory. And you live in the map in some sense, but the territory is always underneath it. And the reason that little ball turned into a pipe was to make that case. It's like it was in this box and it was being transformed into a, an entity that was defined and static. And it it said two things, it said everything transforms, that's the chrysalis and everything transforms into psyche because the butterfly is psyche and then it said don't mistake the map for the territory and then it left and the being that manifests itself the being that shines forth in the phenomenologist's sense is the thing that cannot be encapsulated inside any conceptual structure it's always outside of it, it's always outside of it and you have to keep up with it well and that's why in the Harry Potter book for example the best players don't play the game, they chase the snitch and what that means is that they follow what manifests itself to them as most meaningful at any given time now Jung would have thought of that as the manifestation of the self, because he, he would say, and it's like, I can never remember who, I can never dif differentiate these two thinkers. Jung's like Binswanger. He assumes that the meaning is a consequence of the action of some internal structure, more or less, that he characterized as the self.
Boss's perspective is more, in some sense, it's more like a classical religious perspective, although he dispenses almost entirely with any religious language, and makes the claim that meaning is the fundamental element of being, and that if you lose touch with meaning, then the quality of your being is going to collapse. And not only yours, but also the meaning of the society that you're part of. Because not only, when you're updating, when you're paying attention to what's meaningful, not only are you updating yourself, or not, or not only are you improving the quality of your own being, but because you're embedded in this midwelt, and you're like a node in a network, your transformations affect the transformations of the people around you. And so you can't only transform yourself or fail to. If you transform yourself, you also transform society. And if you fail to transform yourself, then you also fail to transform society. And if you fail to transform society, then it stays static. And if it stays static, then it dies. And so that's the relationship between the phenomenological viewpoint and the existential viewpoint. To me, what the phenomenologists force you to grapple with is the phenomena of meaning. Because it seems to me, and this is basically Heidegger's point, he said, well, what's self-evident? Well, one answer is objects. The other answer is, is, is predicated on a different perspective. Meaning is self-evident in that you can't escape from it. You can, you can escape from the positive elements of it by being lax. But you cannot escape from the negative elements of it. You can't argue yourself out of it. And, and, and you act as if there's nothing more real. So if you, if you th think about it this way, if someone's terrified, they're going to act it out. And you cannot calm them down using rational means. If someone's in pain, it's the same thing. Both anxiety or terror and pain are forms of meaning. And they're not... They're underneath rationality in a sense. In that rationality is powerless against terror and pain. And if you're terrified, then you'll act that way. And if you're in pain, then you'll act that way. And you might do everything you can to say, there's no such thing as meaning. But if your, being, if your state of being is one of terror, no matter what you say, you're going to act like that's real. And then you have to ask yourself another question is, what's more reflective of real? What you say or how you act? And it, it matters because what constitutes real changes with whether, like, what, what defines real changes, or, depending on how you answer that question. And the existentialists would say, well, how you act is what's real. How you act reflects what's real. Magritte played with this a lot. So, there's another painting by Magritte. And he often uses men in suits. 
Like a suit is representative of a certain kind of, a certain mode of being. And it's a mode of being that's focused on, that's focused rather narrowly on whatever a business suit represents. Dominance hierarchy, success, um, materialistic possessions, that's the, at least the cliched and satirical version of business. It certainly represents conformity. And Magritte's painting is a representation of blindness induced by conformity. These people can see, but they're only seeing what's right in front of their eyes. And what's right in front of their eyes that they see blocks them from seeing everything else. Yes? In the, in the first quarter of the 20th century. Sure, it's that it's a, it's it's conformity essentially, yeah. yeah, and it's not only that it's it's like it's moral conformity, you know. I'm not saying that it's right. It's it's that it it's it's in the guise of moral conformity. If you wear a suit, you're you're representing what the culture perceives to be associated with citizenship and responsibility. A lot of what Magritte did was to try to dissociate the structure from the underlying reality and he does that for example in the painting on the right where he takes an image and then juxtaposes it with the wrong signifier I suppose those, in some sense those are almost like that, that painting is almost like a poem in that the juxtaposition of the label and the entity forces you to imagine more than either of them would force you to do alone because you might say well in what manner is a horse like a door and what in what manner is the clock like the wind or a pitcher like a bird well and he returns to normal in the last one and time flies like the wind I mean, a horse is something that takes you places. It's like a door. A bird? It isn't exactly clear to me how a vase is like a bird. <laughs> this is another dream that's attempting to lay out the same idea. So, you are aware, you know, I believe it's Da Vinci, Da Vinci's Vitruvius Man. It's this figure. I presume you've all seen it. It's a very, very famous image. So it's, the man is in a square and then the square is in a circle. Yeah. Um, in this dream, this dream had that image, except the square wasn't a square, it was a cube. So the figure inside the there was a figure inside the cube, which was a a man, sort of a generic man or an idealized man, and the cube was about nine feet, maybe or eight feet by eight feet by eight feet, and the man was suspended in the middle of the cube, so he was about a foot and a half off the floor, floating. 
And then from his hands to the wall was about a foot and a half. And he could reach close to the wall that was in front of him. And then the inside of the cube, no matter where the man looked, was covered with these squares with a circle in them. And inside the circle, there was a little dragon's tail. And if the man walked forward, then the cube went with him. And if the man walked backwards, the cube went with him. And so it was a representation of what surrounds you in reality. And then the man could reach out to any of these squares with the circle, with the tail, and he could pull on one of the tails, and that would pull something into being. And there were all these choices in front of him that represented different paths of being. So, so what that dream represented was this, you know, you might say, well, what is it that's right in front of you? And then you could say, well, chairs, and the floor, and students, and light, and, and that's true. But th there's another way of thinking about it, which is that what's right in front of you is a landscape of possibility to which your conceptions of objects blind you so no matter where you're going in your life the things that present themselves to you offer an array of almost unlimited possibility and so when I look ahead and I see a student or students then that makes all of you one bit of information in a sense right because I've generalized across all of you and there's some utility in that in that part of what you're doing here can be conceptualized as being a student but the loss in that perception might be far greater than the gain because it reduces all of your complexity to a single utterance and makes you flat and so then you think as you wander around the world are you seeing this or are you seeing a wall in front of you that from which you can pull anything you want that the standard viewpoint would be that this is real but it seems to me that you can make a reasonable case that what you interact with is not so much reality as it is possibility and so the possibility is what lurks behind your conception of what's there and that possibility is also the thing out of which everything emerges so if I if you come to my office and I sit and talk to you and I try to approach you without any preconceptions which would be say a Rogerian approach then all sorts of things can emerge into reality that wouldn't emerge at all if I stayed rigidly in a prescribed role now there's some utility in the prescribed role don't get me wrong because it gives people structure and it and it, it helps them manage their expectations and it protects them from being exposed to too much possibility at any one time because that can be overwhelming 
but the danger is, at least in part, that you'll blind yourself to all the things that are there by only allowing yourself to see what you can immediately see the Buddhists talk about desire as something to push aside and I think that's their attempt to warn people about the danger of substituting their own preconceptions about what should be or what is for, for attention to what's behind that so imagine that you're depressed and you're bored and all the positive meaning has gone out of your life well perhaps it's because you've substituted your a priori perceptions for possibility and you're in this cage that, that's in part a mirror and all it does is reflect back to you your sterile preconceptions well behind that is the possibility and it's conceivable in that possibility which is maybe infinite possibility that what it is that you lack now that's making you so rigid and bored could be pulled out of that possibility Boss said, man's option to respond to this claim or to choose not to, not to do so seems to be the very core of human freedom. Alright, so I'm going to return to a theme that I developed partway through this lecture. If being doesn't manifest itself to you as structured, then it's as if you're falling endlessly. You need structure. Structure is like a set of tools that, that you have at your disposal now. The problem with structure is that it can blind you to possibility. And the possibility might be more important than the structure. And that means that partly what you have to do is balance the possibility and the structure one possibility is that the things that manifest themselves to you as meaningful are constitute a gateway between structure and possibility so that if you follow that which shines forth then you stay sufficiently within the structure but at the same time you're pulling in enough new possibility so that the structure stays dynamic and alive instead of static and dead if, if your nervous system huh, if you pay attention to the cues that being is offering you showing you where to look and you actually look then maybe you can stay flexible enough so that as things shift around you you don't grow a huge gap between yourself and the world and fall 
maybe you just interact in a like in a dance that's that's of acceptable emotional significance it's it's anxiety provoking enough to keep you awake and it's compelling enough to keep you interested and so those two things in some sense constitute like the core of meaning in order to interact with the world in that way you have to flip your preconceptions upside down and make the presupposition that the material elements that people modern people regard as most real are actually secondary and limited derivations of something that's more fundamental and the thing that's more fundamental is possibility and possibility shines through structure with meaning that's the phenomenological perspective and the existential perspective is follow that meaning or suffer the consequences that's that we'll see you Thursday.